This time, let's turn in our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 10, and Pastor Skip will continue leading us through the Word of God. First things first, happy Mother's Day, all you moms out there. How how thankful to God we are for you. President Abraham Lincoln said, no one is poor who has a godly mother. And uh, Solomon said as much, that beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. So we praise the Lord for you. We're in Ezekiel chapter 10 tonight, and interesting chapters indeed. A friend of Mark Twain's was telling him how wonderful it would be if he could go see the Holy Land. He said, wouldn't it be great to stand atop Mount Sinai and shout the Ten Commandments in the Holy Land. Well, Mark Twain knew his friend and knew that he was an unsavory character. And in his wit said, I think it would be better if you just stayed home and kept the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Ezekiel is given an all-expense tour to Jerusalem. But it's not the Holy Land when he goes there. It's the unholy land. He gets to see, unfortunately, the sins of the people and especially the leaders in Jerusalem who are leading the people astray. He is taken by the Spirit in a very unorthodox manner, as we read that the Spirit lifted him up by his hair that had grown back by then and took him to Jerusalem in the Spirit to see what was going on in that city and especially in the temple. In this chapter, there is a shift Though it's sad to see the sin of the people, he also here sees the glory of God, which is what he saw in chapter 1. It probably lifted his spirits at first. It's wonderful in the midst of seeing all of the problems to get a vision up higher of the glory of God. I think it's important we do that. If all we see around us is sin, we'll get discouraged. We need to look higher And see the glory of the Lord. It's sort of like when you wear the white shirt and you get a smudge on it. What do you notice? The smudge. But there's so much white left over. We don't notice that so many times. Ezekiel is called upon by God to notice that. And maybe tonight you need that vision of the glory of God. Maybe you're going through a difficult situation at home, at work. And the Lord would remind you of his glory. Verse 1, And I looked, and there in the firmament, that expanse, that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Again, This recalls for us chapter 1, the vision that he got while he was in Babylon by that canal, the Kabar River. He sees it again, a little bit different this time. He's in Jerusalem when he sees it. Now, Ezekiel sees a throne. It's the throne of God, but the throne that he sees is not an ornate, plush, velvet, padded throne. This thing has wheels. It's able to move. 
And uh, it's an interesting setup. It's very powerful. It's not a V8 engine. It doesn't have 300 horsepower. This is uh, an angel-propelled vehicle. In fact, it's four cherub-power vehicle. He sees the faces of them in chapter 1. The Hebrews call it the Merkaba, this uh, chariot throne vehicle or the um, throne car of God that moves in all directions. Four faces were seen on it in chapter 1. And we recalled the four Gospels. We recalled also the four encampments in the wilderness. And the vision of Ezekiel also reminds us of the vision of John in Revelation chapter 4. John also is caught up into heaven and sees the throne room of God. He sees four living creatures and praises are um, given up to God in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation. The difference between those two visions, the one of Ezekiel and one of John, is this. Ezekiel sees the judgments of God proceeding from the throne that would judge the nation of Israel. John sees the judgments that proceed from the throne that judge the entire world. Ezekiel will see, sadly, the glory departing. John sees the glory returning to the earth, returning especially to Jerusalem. Ezekiel sees uh, the kingdoms of this world, namely Babylon, take over the temple area, the kingdom of God in a sense. Revelation is just the opposite. John sees how that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And God takes over and restores the glory back. It's a glorious vision in this chapter, um, but it reveals a tragic moment. Because the glory that he sees is going to leave the temple. And it's not going to return until we get to chapter 43, which is yet future. It's in the millennial kingdom. So what we're seeing in these chapters is this throne chariot, this presence of God that has for eight and a half centuries been in Jerusalem leave. God is fixing to leave town in these chapters. The abiding presence of the Lord. Jesus said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And here we will see the taking away of that branch, that system called Israel in the abiding presence of God. Then he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, go in among the wheels Under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Chapter 1, Ezekiel saw this same vision, brightness, these coals burning among the cherubim. Here he sees a different vision, a vision of the coals that are in their midst scattered over the city. It's going to bring judgment. And it will be predictive of the way Jerusalem will fall. Isaiah also had a vision in chapter 6. And in that vision, seeing the glory of God, he saw himself and he said, Woe is me. You remember the story. He acknowledged his own filth in the presence of a holy God. And in his vision, he saw one of the seraphim, 
different from the cherubim here. The seraphim take one of the coals from off the altar, the sacrificial altar, and touch Isaiah's lips, purging him, cleansing him. There, the coals were used to cleanse. Here, the coals are used to judge and to destroy the city. Now, the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Now, once this cloud was in the Holy of Holies, it was abiding over the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. There, the presence of God had been abiding for centuries. Now, it's moving, which indicates that God is getting ready to move out. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. We have in the cherubim a class of angelic beings. You know, angels are part of God's special creation. They're found about 200 times in 35 books of the Bible. They are called ministering spirits. That is, uh, rather than having bodies, they're without bodies. They're non-corporeal beings. They're ministering spirits. However, from time to time, they have the ability to take on the form of a man so that people, though they would be afraid, would mistake them for human beings. But they were created by God as a special creation. They're not subject to decay or deterioration like human beings are. So God made them as a special creation. That's why sometimes in the Bible they are called sons of God because they're not made by procreation. As Jesus said in Matthew 22, when we're in heaven, we're going to be like the angels. We won't be marrying or given in marriage, but we'll be like the angels. So because they are part of God's special creation, they're sometimes called sons of God. At other times they're called the host of heaven. About 245 times in the Bible, God is called the Lord of hosts, these angelic beings. Now, with these angels, we know a third of them fell with Satan in the Great Rebellion, what the New Testament calls they did not keep their first estate. A third of them fell, they became the demon world. And unfortunately, Uh, People spend most of their time and energy when it comes to the supernatural worried about demons, forgetting that though a third fell, two-thirds did not. So they're outnumbered. So instead of worrying about Satan, worrying about the demons, hey, they're way outnumbered. Two-thirds kept their first estate and worshiped God and their ministering spirits sent as Hebrews said, to minister to those of us who are heirs of salvation. Now here we make a distinction between a special classification of just angels and a special classification called cherubim. These cherubim seem to be guardians of the presence of God or guardians of the holiness of God. 
The seraphim mentioned in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, seraphim is a word that means the burning ones. They're sort of in charge of the worship that went on in Isaiah's vision of glory. Holy, 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 they cried out. The whole earth is full of his glory. But these cherubim are guardians. We see them in the Garden of Eden. They're the first security guards stationed outside the Garden of Eden uh, to protect our first parents, Adam and Eve, from going on inside and eating of the tree of life, lest they live forever in their sin. Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it, put it into his hands, the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand, under their wings. So this fire that he sees in this vision scattered over the city of Jerusalem is predictive of their fate because the city would be eventually in 586 BC, we've already noted in past studies, it would be destroyed by fire when the Babylonians came against that city. And so this is very predictive. The fire that was poured out in this vision predicts the fire that will destroy Jerusalem. Second Kings chapter 25 describes it. It says, In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, the servant of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all of the houses of the great he burned with fire. Now, in the following verses the vision becomes a little more intense. Just like in chapter 1, he describes in detail what he sees, he again describes what he sees with a little variation. We have a detailed description of this throne chariot, this divine car where the presence of God is going to leave Jerusalem with, and a description of the glorious one, You know, it's sort of hard for us to get our minds around this vision. You've probably read it before, tried to picture it in your minds. I've seen artists try to draw it. It's just hard to grasp, to picture the glory of God. One of a child's uh, first questions is, um, what is God like? What does he look like? And you have a hard time, moms and dads, trying to explain it to them. If you were to read... Ezekiel chapter 10 or Ezekiel chapter 1 to them, it probably wouldn't help. Or if you were to read the book of Revelation, it probably wouldn't help them much. What does God look like? What is he like exactly? In a kindergarten class in a Christian school, the teacher was having the kids draw pictures. And one little girl was having her head down arduously drawing something. And the teacher walked by and said, what are you drawing? She said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, you can't draw God. Nobody knows what God looks like. And she didn't miss a beat. She said, they will in a minute. (laughs) 
Ezekiel describes what he sees in this vision of the glory of God. He gets a glimpse into the glory. And so when I looked, verse 9, there were four wheels by the cherubim. One wheel by one cherub, another wheel by each other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of a burl stone. As for their appearance, all four looked alike as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went... They went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but they followed in the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside as they went. Now remember, these wheels that are within wheels are not parallel, but they're crossways at right angles to one another, like a gyroscope, so that this throne, this chariot car could move in any direction wherever it desired, instantaneously. And their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had were full of eyes all around. Now try to imagine that. Eyes everywhere. Kind of spooky sounding. Now eyes often are representative of knowledge. And the idea of eyes all around seeing everything are indicative of a characteristic of God. God is omniscient, all-knowing, all-seeing, sees all that is going on. God knows more than any expert in any field of knowledge. You know, it's sort of funny for me to listen to people bragging about doctor so-and-so, and and this great man in this intense field of study, and he has given so much, and we applaud them for what they have learned. However, that's the point. They learned it. It is acquired knowledge. God's knowledge is intuitive. It's innate. He never has to learn. Somebody drew a little graph of the impressive knowledge of mankind, the accumulated knowledge of man from the beginning of time until now. They did a little graph saying that uh, we are learning so much now exponentially that were you to represent the acquired, learned, accumulated knowledge of mankind from the beginning of recorded history until the year 1845, if you were to represent it by one inch tall, then what we have learned from 1845 to the year 1945, a hundred years later, would be represented by three inches. So we have exponentially grown in knowledge in just a hundred years, represented by three inches, as opposed to all that we've acquired from the beginning of history till 1845 by one inch. It went on to say that if you were then to measure the accumulated knowledge from the year 1945 to the year 1975, just 30 years later, it would be the height of the Washington Monument. And it went on to describe just how much we're learning acquired knowledge exponentially. But again, we have to study and we acquire and we learn. God just knows. He sees all. He knows absolutely everything. Pretty strange to be in the presence of this vehicle with eyes all around. Do you know what it's like when somebody, say, in a restaurant is staring at you? how you feel a little bit embarrassed. What are they looking at? Why are they looking at me so long? I wish they wouldn't do that. 
We love our privacy. We don't want them looking. Okay, with God, the Bible says, Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open before the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. And here's a visual of that, eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called, in my hearing, wheel. Isn't that great? Each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. Now, in the original vision, it was the face of an ox. And it's interesting, commentators have wrestled with this, why there's differences. And I've read Jewish sources and Christian sources, and I've discovered we don't know why. It just is. The second face, the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. The fourth, the face of an eagle. And the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Kabar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. When the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. When one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. See, God is getting ready to mount his chariot car and get out of town. The cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them, and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. It's a sad picture, really. It's monumental to have this vision. It was wonderful, in a sense, to have Ezekiel's eyes now distracted off of the sins of the people onto the glory of God, but the sad thing is the glory of God is leaving town. It's departing. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the children of Israel were at a very strategic battle with the Philistines, the battle at Aphek. And the children of Israel thought, if we could just get the Ark of the Covenant into this battle, we would win it. They were now trusting in the icon their imagery of the ark rather than God himself. And they brought it in. And the story tells us that the Philistines captured the ark of the covenant. Also on that day, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in that battle. And interestingly enough, the wife of Phinehas that day was giving birth to a son. When she heard that her husband and his brother were killed in the battle and that the ark of God had been captured by the Philistines, she named her baby Ichabod. The glory has departed, or no glory, because the ark had been captured. When this presence of God, this Shekinah glory of God, this cloud moved out of the holy place and toward the east gate, the glory was departing. You could write Ichabod over Jerusalem. God was leaving. This is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Kibar, and I knew that they were cherubim. 
Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. So that's told us twice, a detail in chapter 10 that we don't get in chapter 1. And the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I had seen by the river Kibar. Their appearance and their persons, they each went straight forward. We learn a very important lesson here, and that is God will never share his glory with another. He was not about to enter into a timeshare program with any of the idols that they had in the temple. If they wouldn't honor him in his own house, then he would leave. It's a principle they should have known. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 42 said, I am the Lord, that is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Question, has the glory of God, to some degree even, departed from your walk, departed from your life? Jesus wrote that letter to the church at Ephesus because they had left their first love, that love of espousal, that intimacy with Christ, Oh, they were busy, they were doing works, they were commended for their strong doctrinal stance, but they had left their first love. And Jesus says that he wouldn't stay around a church that had lost its love for him. He said, unless you repent and return, I will remove the candlestick from its place. So the glory of God, the presence of God was leaving Jerusalem. Then the Spirit, verse 1 lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there at the door of the gate were 25 men. Now you will remember, those of you who have been to Israel, when you stand on the Mount of Olives and you look down at the city of Jerusalem, the first thing you see is that golden dome, which is a more modern structure, but it's on the Temple Mount. And to your right, as you look at Jerusalem, you see a gate that is today sealed. But it's called the East Gate. And it's over where the original East Gate stood. And that was the entrance from the east going into the Temple Mount into Jerusalem. And so in the vision, he sees this glory cloud lift up. It has left the Holy of Holies. It's moved out to the threshold. And it's going to go east to the East Gate and then eventually to the Mount of Olives. There at the door of the gate were 25 men, among whom I saw Jeazaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, the princes of the people. Now, this is all happening at the gate, and it's the east gate. Now, gates in ancient times were very important and significant structures. They weren't a gate like we think in a modern gate of having hinges and a door that swing. It was an actual structure. It was a room. And um, inside that room, at that portal of the city, was the place of access, not just to get in the city and get out of the city, but it was a person's access, a citizen's uh, access to the involvement of that town. If you wanted news, you'd go to the gate. Travelers were there, and they would talk about foreign places, where they had been, what they had seen. If you wanted to adjudicate a case, you needed to go to court. You'd go to the gate. The elders of the city would assemble at the gate. 
So it's very significant at this portal, this access point, the glory of God stops and rests before it moves further east to the Mount of Olives. Notice it says, Jaazaniah, the son of Azur. And I'm having you notice it because there are three other Jaazaniahs who were living during that time. Mentioned in chapter 8 of Ezekiel, mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 25, uh, there seems to be four different Jaazaniahs. But notice it's Jaazaniah, the son of Azur. Now, it could be, and probably is, this is the same Azur that we read about in Jeremiah chapter 28. If he is, then Jaazaniah was the brother of Hananiah, and Hananiah was the false prophet. If you remember who said, in two years, everything will change. The exiles will come back to Jerusalem and will overthrow the yoke of the king of Babylon. He was a false prophet. Now, his brother is giving the same kind of false messages to the people. Just like Hananiah gave a false message during Jeremiah's time, this Jaazaniah, or this, uh, yeah, Jaazaniah is giving a false message, his brother, during the time of Ezekiel. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city. The false prophets giving wicked counsel. Uh, we're telling the people of Jerusalem, don't fear. And the ones that were back in exile at the Kibar River, don't worry. Jerusalem will not fall. We'll be back soon. Giving the people false hope, leading them astray. These false prophets would bolster the hopes, but soon those hopes would quickly be dashed. A counselor is a very important and noble role. If you're looking for a counselor, you have an issue in your life, choose wisely. It says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And these were giving ungodly counsel to those who were in Jerusalem. If you're going to give people information that is eternal information, you better be accurate. You don't fudge when it comes to spiritual truth. You want to make sure you're right on the money. And it's fortified with God's truth. So if you're looking for a counselor, find somebody who loves the Lord, who will give you good, wise, godly counsel. Here he chastens them because they gave wicked counsel in this city. Sometimes people in their counseling techniques or their counseling hunting will look for a counselor who tell them exactly what they want to hear rather than what they should hear. So they'll go from pastor to pastor and church to church until they find somebody who will put their arm around him and say, yes, I agree with you. What would you like me to tell you? Whatever you want to do, God bless you. A fool is somebody who listens to no one and a fool is somebody who listens to everyone. Make sure that they love the Lord. Oh, but he has so many degrees after his name. Today, the church has lots of degrees, 
but it's low on temperature, spiritually speaking. They were giving wicked counsel. Who say, listen to their counsel, the time is not near to build houses. The city is the cauldron and we are the meat. In other words, it's not time to build homes. It's time to advance as an army and fight the Babylonians. The city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. Meat was scarce in those days. Most people didn't eat it regularly. It was just on special occasions. But when meat was prepared, it was a special meal, and it was put in a pot generally. That's how it was cooked. Because it was put in an iron pot, the iron pot or cauldron protected the meat from the fire. And the idea is here we are. We're living in Jerusalem. We have strong walls. And just like that iron pot that would protect the meat from the fire will be protected from the Babylonian Invasion, if it comes. We're God's choice meat, His special people. He wouldn't dare let us fall. We've got the temple. Therefore, prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. Then the Spirit of the Lord fell on me and said to me, Speak, thus says the Lord. Thus you have said, O house of Israel. For I know the things that come into your mind. Again, reminiscent of that vision he saw, the eyes all around, seeing everything. You cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. Don't even try. It says in Proverbs chapter 5, The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his goings. I know what's in your mind, what you're thinking. So often in the New Testament we read of Jesus being in a situation, and it says, And Jesus, knowing Their thoughts said unto them. He responded out loud to what they were just processing in their minds. It can be unsettling to be around somebody like that. Just as it would be unsettling to have this vision full of wheels with eyes and hands with eyes and back with eyes and wings with eyes. I heard about a trucker going through town on a CB radio. He was a trying to radio someone he called his girlfriend. She was really a call girl, a prostitute. And he tried to get a hold of her, couldn't get through, and finally said, well, I'm sorry I didn't get you. Sorry you were unable to hear me at this time. I'll call you when I go through town next time. A minister in town had also a CB radio, and he heard it. And he quickly got on the speaker and he said, hey, Uh, She may not be able to hear it, but God certainly does and knows what you're up to. And this spooked the truck driver. He said, I knew this thing had great reception, but I didn't know it would go that far. (laughs) He can't trick God. He hears it. He sees it all. You have multiplied your slain in this city. You have filled its streets with the slain. That means that you are guilty and you will be held guilty for the slaughter that will take place at the hand of the Babylonians. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat and the city is the cauldron. But I shall bring you out of the midst of it. So God, through Ezekiel, reinterprets their vision and their symbolism. Yes, Jerusalem was the cauldron, but the only ones who will be safe will be the dead they will be expelled from the city and be vulnerable 
to the attack of the Babylonians and exile. You have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God, and I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgments on you. Again, realize their mindset. A group of people thinking, we have a temple. We've got walls. We're God's chosen people. Just like meat that would be taken out on a special occasion and protected from the flames of fire by a cauldron, we're protected. It's sort of the thinking of those professed Christians, what we would call a nominal Christian, who says, well, I keep all the right ceremonies. I say all the prayers. I sing all the songs. But there's been no real change of heart There's no real, authentic relationship with the Lord. You'll remember that at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, look at all the wonderful things we've done in your name and the demons we've cast out and the miracles performed. And Jesus said, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity saying all of the right words, claiming to do all of the right things, but no real change, just this nominalism, this profession without a real possession of the Spirit. So were the people of Jerusalem. And now they're being called upon to face up to reality. Years ago, there was an orchestra in Japan for the royal emperor. It was the royal orchestra. And a man who was very wealthy, couldn't play a note, couldn't read a note, couldn't play any instrument, wanted to be in the orchestra because he wanted to play in front of the emperor. So he paid a lot of money, and the conductor put him in the second row, gave him a flute, and whenever the orchestra started playing, he'd fake it. He'd put the flute up to his mouth and move his fingers and pucker his lips and look like he was playing an instrument. But he couldn't play a note, couldn't read a note. This went on for two years until the conductor left and a new one took his place. The new conductor demanded a a personal meeting with everyone in the orchestra, an audition, to find out how well they could play so that he could place them the way he saw fit. Well, this petrified this guy. So every time the audition came up for him, he would feign sickness. Can't come, I'm sick. But the conductor would have no excuses. And so this man had to confess that he was unable, and here's where we get the phrase, he was unable to face the music because though it was put in front of him, he couldn't play a note. Jerusalem, the Jews were called upon to face the music and they were were unable to do it. They had the right profession, but they didn't have the possession of a relationship with God. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in its midst. You won't be protected. I will judge you at the border. Remember that Taco Bell commercial? Run for the border. You know what happened to these guys? They were expelled from Jerusalem. They started running for the border. They were taken by the Babylonians to the northernmost border, the area called Hamath at the city of Riblah. And just as Jeremiah predicted, they were massacred 
And King Zedekiah had his sons killed in front of him, and then the king's eyes were put out, and he was taken to Babylon. And the rest of the people who survived that massacre were also taken. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my judgments, but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles which are all around you. What did Paul tell us? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your minds. They had conformed and wanted to do so, wanted to be like other nations. It started well back in their monarchy when they asked for a king. Now they had been practicing the same sinful practices, same worship practices as the Babylonians. And instead of being transformed, they were conforming to this world. God calls us to be nonconformists. And Christians are the true nonconformists, the ultimate nonconformists. John said, love not the world, neither the things that are in this world but be transformed, as Paul said, by the renewing of your minds. Now it happened. While I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died, perhaps this was the leader of this insurgent group, just dropped dead. Then I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice, Ah, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, And all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. The people who still remained in the city of Jerusalem, while the exiles had already been taken to Babylon, became proud. They left Jerusalem. They're not godly. They're not protected anymore by God. The city belongs to us who are still here. In reality, God is going to say, I'm going to protect, preserve those who are in captivity and bring them back eventually. But you will be expelled from this city. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles and although I have scattered them among the countries... Yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. I suggest you get Pastor Chuck's tape on the message this morning that covers the grace of God to these exiles and how much he loved them and continued to pursue them even after they had gone into the Babylonian captivity. So here God is saying to these people, who had alleged, you left, you're in Babylon, you captives aren't under the protection of God any longer. God says, I will be a little sanctuary to them. Now, it's interesting to me how the Jews have sought to interpret this verse. They don't have a temple anymore. There is no sacrifice made for the sins of the nation. And it's interesting what they have done with the absence of their temple instead of looking to their Messiah, Jesus, who died for their sins. 
they sort of get around it by saying, well, we just keep good works now and we trust that God will cover our sins by our good works. And they'll even use this verse. And this is what they'll say. God, they say, was predicting how that without a temple, he would provide even in captivity meeting places, gathering places, the synagogues as little sanctuaries for the Jews in the absence of their temple. And to this day, synagogues are referred to by the Jews as a little sanctuary. Saying, look, it was all in God's purview. God knew the temple would be destroyed and we can't offer sacrifices for our sins. So we meet in the synagogues and we read the scriptures. But notice, it doesn't say the synagogue will be the little sanctuary. God says, I will be that sanctuary for you. I personally Moses said in Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. It's the Lord who promised to walk with them in their captivity and keep them and bless them and regather them. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered. I will give you the land of Israel and they will go there. And they will take away all of its detestable things, all of its abominations from there. And then I will give them one heart or an undivided heart. I will put a new spirit within them and take the stony heart, that is that hardened, recalcitrant, rebellious heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Again, get Pastor Chuck's message this morning that deals with those verses. But as for those whose hearts follow the desire of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord of God. The Old Covenant was ineffective and yearned for the new covenant. It couldn't transform. It tried to control our conduct. The new covenant promises a change of character. Or for you musicians, under the law, you were limited to sheet music. You don't need that anymore. You can play by ear. God has put his song in your heart, and it's just there. It's this natural relationship that you have. It's not keeping a list of do's and don'ts or certain deeds or ceremonies. It's that relationship that is real and authentic from the heart through being born again. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. Did you know that the rabbis claimed that this Shekinah glory, this visible cloud, this symbol of the presence of God, stayed on the Mount of Olives for three and a half years? Interesting number, isn't it? It stayed there three and a half years before it finally departed. Now, for a minute, think of what Jesus is called by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1. Who, concerning Jesus, being the brightness of his glory 
and the express image of his person. When Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives, and then he was set on a donkey and he went into the city, he took an interesting route, didn't he? The Mount of Olives through the east gate and then into the temple. The very same route that the glory departed, the glory, the visible express image and brightness of his glory, Jesus Christ, entered the temple. Also, at the end of Jesus' ministry, the Mount of Olives became his launching pad. He was there with his disciples and he lifted up and ascended into heaven. And the story doesn't end there. When Jesus comes back, Zechariah 14 tells us, his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives. His feet will touch down. And how long was Jesus ministering on the earth? Interesting, three and a half years. A very interesting parallel. Ezekiel 44, we'll get to it, uh, will tell us that he will enter uh, the second time as he comes back through the east gate as well. Then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to those in captivity. And the vision that I had seen went up from me. So I spoke to those in captivity all the things the Lord had shown me. Now you too, you also, are a temple. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives inside of you. In a sense, you also have an inner court as well as an outer court and outer gates. You have the inner spirit life. You can, you can have a lot go on on the outside that covers up what is really on the inside. There are people in ministry who have lots of activities and lots of fluff and the outward looks great and strong. They're going through all the motions. But the inner life is empty. The glory has departed. And what happens over time is when a person loses intimacy with God, though it doesn't show up at first, eventually they'll lose influence for God. Think of people like Jimmy Swagger or others who have fallen, and we look at them and we think, oh, it happened so suddenly. Oh, no, it didn't. Those kinds of things are never a blowout. They're a slow leak of a tire over a long period of time. The glory departed. You know, there's a law in physics called entropy, as a lot of you know, the second law of thermodynamics. And entropy basically says that over time in a closed system, energy is lost and not recovered. And just as there is entropy in the physical world, I believe there's entropy in the spiritual realm as well. Unless acted upon by an outside source, things left to itself, they tend toward decay. And you can't just put your spiritual life in neutral. You can't just say, I'm cruising along. If the Lord wants to get a hold of me, he's got my number. No, the Bible says, draw near unto him, and he will draw near unto you. Maybe tonight you've discovered that the, the coals on the altar of your heart have been losing energy, losing heat. And it's been happening over a period of time. And the Lord is saying, come back home. Remember from where you have fallen, repent and do those first works again. Well, in chapter 12, we have two more signs of impending doom and captivity. Um, 
The people have become spiritually blind and deaf. And because of that, God needs to use these very visual means to get their attention, these unusual means to get his word across to them. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house. And you heard that, he probably thought, Amen, I do. Which has eyes to see, but does not see. Ears to hear, but does not hear. For they are a rebellious house speaks of their capacity to process information. They're hearing it, they're seeing it, but because their heart is not open, they're not getting it. Paul said, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit. They're spiritually discerned. He can't know them. Their hearts weren't open to the revelation of God. Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity And go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. It may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight as though going into captivity. And at evening you shall go in their sight like those who go into captivity. Dig through the wall in their sight and carry your belongings out through it. In their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So this is a pantomime. His actions during the day were indicative that the children of Israel would further go into captivity. It's not over yet. A whole other group will come in months and years following. And then the actions portrayed at night was a picture of what Zedekiah, their king, would try, trying to escape through a hole in the city wall and run out at night and not be seen, but he was captured. So I did as I was commanded. I brought out my belongings by day as though going into captivity. And at evening, I dug through the wall with my hand. I brought them out at twilight, and I bore them on my shoulder in their sight. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, has not the house of Israel The rebellious house said to you, what are you doing? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, this burden concerns the prince in Jerusalem and the house of Israel who are among them. Say, I am assigned to you as I have done, so it shall be done to them. They shall be carried away into captivity. And the prince who is among them, that's King Zedekiah, shall bear his belongings on his shoulder at twilight and go out. They shall dig through the wall to carry them out through it. He shall cover his face so that he cannot see the ground with his eyes. I will spread my net over him and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans. And yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. That was dramatically and accurately fulfilled in 586 B.C. when King Zedekiah and a whole group were taken up to that northern border we told you about. The land of Hamath, the city of Riblah, as predicted. And his sons were killed, his eyes were put out. And so he died in Babylon, he went to Babylon, but because he was blind he never saw the country of Babylon. I will scatter to every wind all who are around him to help him, all of his troops, and I will draw out the sword after them. Then 
They shall know that I am the Lord when I scatter them among the nations and disperse them through the countries. That's repeated three times in this section. The Jerusalemites, those who dwell in Judah, all of these Jews will know that he is the Lord after the judgment. They'll wake up. Oh, I get it, they'll say. But it'll be too late. One day, ultimately, all of the world, the entire earth, every person will know, without a doubt, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. For some, it will be too late. That's why... The when is so vital. They'll know that I am the Lord when. When will that be for some of you? You can do it now in salvation and acknowledge him as Lord. Or that when can be later when it's too late. When that day of grace and opportunity is over. They'll know that I am the Lord when. I scatter them among the nations. But I will spare a few of their men from the sword, from famine, from pestilence, that they may declare all of their abominations among the Gentiles wherever they go. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, eat your bread with quaking. Drink your water with trembling and anxiety. And say to the people of the land, Thus says the Lord God to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the land of Israel, they shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink their water with dread so that her land may be emptied of all who are in it because of the violence of all those who dwell in it. Then the cities that are inhabited shall be laid waste and the land shall become desolate and you shall know that I am the Lord. So there's Ezekiel our little actor, doing his pantomime, quaking and shaking, picturing the terror that will come to the people who up to this point have thought, it's not going to get any worse than this. Nobody else will leave Jerusalem and come to Babylon. And those in Babylon will all come back. They think the worst is past. The worst is yet to come. And so Ezekiel portrays just how scared They'll be in their daily routines. You know, it's, uh, it's hard to understand this kind of terror unless you've been living in countries like this. We're blessed by God to live where we live. But I'll never forget what it was like flying in a United Nations plane into the city of Mogadishu, Somalia during the war that we had there. And I remember as we landed, it was very different from typical air flights where they say, thank you for choosing our airlines. Have a great time at your destination if this is it. Rather, they said as we landed, good luck. (laughs) And as we landed, I saw the Italian army loading caskets of their dead soldiers onto their planes, and they were leaving. And I remember getting in a Land Rover, and the guy in the front, there were two soldiers. One had an AK-47, the other guy had an M-16. And 
They were hired to protect us as we went through the streets of Mogadishu. And then every 30 minutes where we were staying in our compound, that Black Hawk helicopters were circling overhead, and they were looking for major ID. This was a week before the Black Hawk fell. Ours did in Mogadishu. And it was just, well, it was unsettling just to sit down and have a meal. They called up and they said, time for lunch. And I'm thinking, who can eat lunch at a time like this? And I found myself eating very differently than I do here. So I read these verses and think of uh, Ezekiel acting this out. And I remember for those living there how unsettling it was to live. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, what is this proverb? that you people have about the land of Israel, which says the days are prolonged and every vision fails. In other words, all of these prophecies that you and Jeremiah have made about the doom of our city and our country, they haven't happened. They're not going to happen. Never has been fulfilled, they said. Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will lay this proverb to rest. And they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. For no more shall there be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I speak and the word which I speak will come to pass. It will no more be postponed. For in your days, O rebellious house, I will say the word And perform it, says the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, look, the house of Israel is saying, the vision that he sees is for many days from now. And he prophesies of times far off. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words shall be postponed anymore, but the word which I speak will be done, says the Lord. So, They heard Jeremiah's words in Jerusalem. They heard Ezekiel's words in Babylon. And they said, ah, it's never going to happen. Heard it before. Ezekiel, you tell them that it's going to come to pass and they're going to see it in their own day. There is a tendency sometimes that people have When it comes to hearing the word of God, oh, that's really not for me. Or we think, I know somebody who really needs this message. Wish they were here today. And we tend to just sort of brush it off and project it onto somebody else when maybe the Lord's trying to get our attention, saying this is for you, not for them or for people afar off, but for you now here. When it comes to the prophecies of the coming of the Lord and the soon return of Jesus Christ, Some, maybe even perhaps some of you, every time you hear them now, you say, yeah, right, heard that before. I was here in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and it's in now 2005, and you keep saying Jesus is coming back soon. Well, you got to admit, it's a lot sooner now than it was then. And I honestly believe it's very, very soon. We're on borrowed time. The prophecies of the past have been fulfilled. 
And look at the track record of God in the fulfillment of prophecy, and it gives you such a powerful foundation as you look to the future. Will they be fulfilled? Oh, you bet. I love what Vance Havner said. The old book, that's the Bible, has been buried many times, but the corpse has a habit of coming back to life in the midst of internment to outlive all the pallbearers. All those people who have scoffed have only to look at the track record of the past, and in doing so, they then have to make a choice. What about all of the predictions God has made for the future? And then ask themselves the question, do I have a relationship with him? Am I enjoying his presence? Am I living in the light of his glory? Has the glory departed? Perhaps Jesus is calling some of you back to intimacy with him, saying, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do those first works again, lest I remove the lampstand from its place. Let's pray. Lord, as we read these chapters, it seems that you were reluctant to leave Jerusalem, slow in doing so. That encourages us, Lord. It encourages us that you love us enough to send out the warning signals time and time again through prophets that you would send rising up early and giving the message to the people. And then even the ability for people to see that slow removal, at least the prophet Ezekiel, until finally the glory had departed. Tonight, Lord, you're calling us to a place of intimacy a place of walking with you step by step. Some of us look back and we remember how, how close we were. And we want to know you more intimately, Lord. And so, Lord, as you're calling us back to that place, may we respond and live in the light of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. I received a report this week on our ministries through the Internet. We have several different um, Internet ministries. One is from Calvary Chapel Outreach Fellowship. The other is Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. We have K-Wave. We have uh, the Word for Today. On our Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa site, this last month, we had 800,000 visits, people visiting our site. With the K-Wave and with the CCOF and with uh, the uh, Word for Today, we've had another 400,000 visits which means that well over a million people visiting our site each month, taking down materials that are available for them on the Internet. And it is exciting to realize and to know that 
the message that we've heard tonight will be live streamed uh, several times this week on the Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa internet site. Uh, we have live streaming almost all day long, all evening long. Uh, every week, Pastor John Corson, Pastor Brian Boderson, the services is here. They are live streamed across the country, but then we continue to stream them through the week so that the ministry just covers so much and so many people. And to me, it's just a thrill to realize uh, how many people we are able to touch with the Word of God and in the teaching of the Word of God. We have an unseen kind of an audience. And I was noticing the nations all around the world, probably 50 different nations are represented as visiting our sites. Uh, such a wonderful uh, work that God is doing. It's just really a thrill uh, to see how it is spreading around the world and reaching so many people. I think from China there were over 4,000 visits in the month of April uh, to our site. From Russia, something like 8,000 visits. And uh, just around the world, people uh, gathering the materials that are available for them. And it's just uh, a broadening of the ministry uh, through the media that God has made available for us. Tonight, again, we've been blessed with the instruction and teaching of the Word of God. And may we not just be taking in, but may we be giving out. Tonight, the pastors are down here at the front. They're here to pray for you. It could be that you're going through a difficult time. It could be that you have some pretty heavy situations in your life, heavy burdens. They're here to share with you those burdens. As the Bible tells us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're also told to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for you. So tonight, if you're going through a trial, a difficulty, and you'd like someone just to join with you in prayer, we encourage you to come on forward as soon as we're dismissed. They're here for that express purpose of praying with you, praying for you, and bearing your burden with you. I cast all my cares upon you. I lay all of my burdens down at your feet. And any time I don't know what to do, I will cast all my cares upon you. 